Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Coat Guild. Today you're going to hear a recording of an AMA hosted on June 22, 2023 with Dr. Zara Weinberg, a cell biologist at UCSF. She's a postdoc in the El-Samad lab with a focus on synthetic biological approaches to cell signaling and sensing. This episode is sponsored by SciFind.io, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Be mindful that it is a live conversation and has a format that can involve the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. Uh, this AMA is sponsored by SciFind.io. We're an expert network for scientists who share information beyond the publication. So if you run into troubleshooting problems with experiments, looking for equipment hacks or tips, things like that, you can check out the platform make a post for free and share your knowledge or interact with people just trying to help each other resolve these really difficult um, experimental issues based on what we figure out ourselves. Um, so really using community to solve a lot of our scientific problems. Um, today we're in for a big treat. Uh, welcome. <laughs> We have a guest who not, who doesn't just break down cell biology, but also breaks down a lot of barriers in science. You can meet Dr. Zara Weinberg. She's a scientist with a really insatiable curiosity, especially in SynBio. She spends her days unraveling the mysteries of cell signaling with a big focus on cyclic AMP and is a big enthusiast on uh, with G-protein coupled receptors. But she also isn't your typical scientist. She is a self-proclaimed publication anarchist, which is also a soft spot for me, and moves for a shift in the scientific publishing world. She's also really big on uh, mentoring the next generation and paving the way for a more inclusive and collaborative scientific community. When she's not uh, lighting up the world of science, you can find her hiking, trying to ban cars, which I totally agree with. I don't drive and I want everything to be pedestrian or chilling with her feline friends. Uh, we're excited to have her here today to answer all your burning questions. So buckle up and let's welcome Dr. Zara Weinberg. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So I think where I like to start, um, just because I like to hear people's stories and stuff is what made you become a scientist ultimately? What were you like as a kid? Um, I like that. I love a backstory. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so I was an only child, which meant that I spent a lot of time making up stories uh, and, and playing them out on my own in my like big backyard outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I, I think that like, I, I always had sort of a, a I loved sci-fi. I loved like imagining what could be, but I never really thought of myself as a scientist or somebody who was interested in science. Like science was never one of my favorite topics in school. I always found science to be kind of like just a litany of facts that was pretty boring to me. Um, uh, in middle school, I read uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, and that was sort of my first window into like, oh, wow, science can be about like answering difficult questions and, and about uncertainty and how things work. Um, and so I think that that sort of opened my eyes into like, you know, the, the like complexity that one can find in science. But it still didn't mean that like I was, you know, sort of pursuing that as a career. Um, when, when I ended up applying to college, I was planning to be a linguistics major because I found language really fascinating. I'd spent some time in, in high school taking a bunch of different languages. 
Um, and then within my first two years of college, I sort of had this, this realization of like, okay, language is cool, but like, I feel like the thing that produces and understands language is the really cool thing here. Um, and so I sort of scrambled to like get all the requirements in to, to get this sort of like ad hoc neuroscience major together where I took some chemistry, I took some biology, I took a lot of psychology, um, and and that is what really started me on like my my scientific pursuits. I think I think that was when I started to realize that like oh no, this is not just a litany of facts. This is uh, this sort of iterative process where we have hypotheses and then we test them and we refine our models and that sort of thing. And so I started to really enjoy it from there. Um, I took some time off after college uh, to work in the tech industry. I was like. You know, I, I really loved teaching. Uh, I was a TA in college for a couple of different courses, and I thought that that was, like, my dream career. But I also had this, like, little nagging voice in the back of my head. It was like, okay, but, like, literally all you've ever done is go to class. Maybe that's the only reason that you, you want this. And so taking some time off to, like, try out, quote-unquote, the real world. Um, and that really reinforced my, like, no, I want to be doing something where I'm, like, giving back to a community and... I feel like doing science and teaching science is, is a way that I can do that. Um, so I went to grad school. I, I applied to sort of on a whim. Like, I did not know anything about bioscience grad programs. Um, I applied to the two places that I had, like, heard lots about. Uh, MIT and Stanford did not get into either. And then randomly talked to somebody who did a robotics degree at Carnegie Mellon and mentioned that, like, they have a cool biological sciences department. So I applied to that program off the cuff. Um, thankfully, I got in there, and that was... Uh, and uh, not, not just got in, but there was one lab there that was specifically studying G-protein-coupled receptors, which is sort of, like, the whole thing that I wanted to go to grad school to study. Um, and that turned into, you know, this growing love of cell biology and cell signaling. Uh, and I think I went into grad school really thinking that I would end up at like a small, uh, primarily undergraduate institution that I really wanted to teach and mentor in the same way that I experienced that as an undergraduate. And I think over time, as I got exposure to the types of things that you can do at like an R1 research institution, my goals sort of shifted where, you know, I wanted to spend a lot of time focusing on mentoring the next generation of scientists, like you said, but also doing that with sort of a, a like prestigious research program. And so that's what I've been pursuing ever since. And now I'm doing, you know, sort of on my way to that with a, a postdoc at UC San Francisco, which is just an absolutely magical place to do science, especially cell biology. Yeah, a lot of things there. I mean, UCSF is a great institution. I think I've spoken with them before back when I worked in immunorepertoire stuff. They have a really good immunology department. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I love the doors of perception. Um, yeah. It's... <laughs> It, I like, I also like the, the song by the doors, like, <laughs> and, and that's like, it all is just full circle. So, <laughs> um, it's a great book. Aldous Huxley is awesome. Um, and, yeah, uh, I, I really love that book. I mean, I, I think about it all the time when I'm like giving talks and, you know, my introduction is like, well, cells perceive their environment in different ways in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, we have all of these keys unlocking, you know, each of our cells, little doors to perceiving their environment. Yeah. I love that. It's, it, it, it really is this huge, larger meta 
metacognitive thing where I'm a product of all these cells and these cells are sensing and then I'm sensing and then what am I? And so it's- Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I would say, what is a quick intro on the current research that you do? What are, what are the things that you're pursuing? What are some of the topics? Um, Sure. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think my fundamental interest is in how cells are able to perceive sort of unlimited signals in their environment, but they only have sort of a finite set of machinery to be able to do that. And that, that's been sort of a theme throughout my scientific career. So in grad school, I was really interested in how multiple signals acting at the same receptor were able to produce distinct effects. Um, and when I was sort of thinking about like how to extend this work of like, okay, do I pick a new receptor? Do I like try and dig even deeper into like the molecular models of this? Um, or do I sort of think about this from a different perspective? And, and in pursuing my postdoc, I think the reason that I, I picked up on cyclic AMP is because it's this sort of convergent signal. So for example, you have an opioid receptor that can respond to a number of different ligands, you know, exogenous drugs like uh, morphine or heroin. Um, but also endogenous signals like endorphins. Um, but there's still sort of a limited set of things that converge on this one single receptor. And what I think is really interesting about cyclic AMP is literally hundreds of receptors in our cells converge upon controlling cyclic AMP signaling. Um, and so when I went into my postdoc, I was sort of really fascinated by how this like single endpoint can specifically interpret this multitude of signals. And what I've been trying to do in my postdoc is sort of build a, a prototype for how to be able to understand how each individual cell utilizes cyclic AMP and its cyclic AMP sort of response properties to produce specific signals. And so right now I'm doing that work in mouse embryonic stem cells as sort of a model of cell types of the early embryo and seeing how cells that differ by about 32 hours in development um, uh, specifically respond to cyclic AMP, but do so in a different manner. And like what protein expression changes regulate how they respond differently to cyclic AMP. Very cool. I think um, when I was reading about some of your work, you had mentioned something about a sentinel cell. What is yeah. a sentinel cell? What is its purpose? Yeah, so so this project was very interesting. Um, so at the the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, I had just started my postdoc. I came to this postdoc partially because of of my mentor, uh, Dr. Han Al Samad's past experience with like looking at cyclic AMP and uh, modeling these sort of complex molecular interactions. Um, but also because Dr. Al-Samad's lab had a, a strong history in synthetic biology, um, which is something that I had always been fascinated by, but like knew nothing about. So early in the pandemic, you know, this there's this global emergency and it's a biology emergency, um, which is, you know, sort of probably the only time in history where I'm like, wow, I have a skill set that might be able to like help the world. And of course, you know, what actually ended up helping the world is research that had been ongoing for 40 years at that point. Um, but before we knew how things were going to pan out, I was like, okay, is there some way that I can take like this interest in synthetic biology, this interest in cell signaling, and turn it into something that might be useful in the context of the pandemic? Um, and so what ended up coming out of that is this sentinel cell project where basically we took a synthetic receptor, 
reprogrammed it so that it could detect the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, the the antigen protein on the surface of this virus, uh, and then respond with some kind of arbitrary signal. Um, And we sort of envision this, you know, this is a, a, a sort of prototype for what you could imagine future cell therapies could be. Right now, we produce cell therapies where if you, say, have cancer and there's a specific antigen in that cancer, you can be transduced with T cells that will specifically target and destroy that antigen. But if we think of these not just as like an acute therapy, but maybe as sort of a defense system, you could also imagine sometime far in the future where we have this sort of synthetic immune system that we can imbue people with that you can uh, target against things that the immune system is very bad at recognizing in the first place. And so that's sort of the like long-term dream of these sentinel cells is that this is something that once once we have much better understanding of how to make cell therapies viable in humans, um, this can be sort of like a, a preemptive dis, uh, defense network. Ooh, that is, I like that. It's like your own synthetic army of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, programmable as well. Yeah, it's like we can't always rely. I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of funny that people have these um, almost natural fallacies when it comes to vaccines. And they're like, oh, but vaccines are unnatural. When it's kind of odd because the their whole mechanism is using the natural system. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's that that one's always a that's a, some mental gymnastics for that. But um, I think one of the one of the things I love, I mean, I'm a big uh experimentalist, what are the sort of tools, molecular or otherwise, that you use in your lab on the daily, like bioinformatics or, or wet lab tools? What are some like lifesavers, some hacks that you could come up with over time? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Moving from studying basic cell biology, which was very much you make some genetic constructs, you transfect some cells, and then you look at those cells on the microscope. That was basically my entire PhD. I mean, you know, some biochemistry there, but like a lot of single cell microscopy analysis, which I think can be really powerful for understanding what's happening in single cells, right? But is this sort of low throughput method for understanding the fundamental biology? Whereas now my work is sort of at least part of it is trying to think about, okay, how do we engineer cells? And a lot of that is, well, you try a bunch of stuff and most of it doesn't work. Um, And so you're trying to find these like, you know, diamonds in the rough in terms of like a genetic construct that can do something in cells. Um, And so my, my day to day life in lab is, is trying to use like semi high throughput approaches um, to be able to like whittle these engineering problems down into, you know, something solvable. So most of what I do in the lab is still, you know, some molecular biology cloning using like modular cloning toolkits um, to build interesting new constructs put that stuff into cells of a variety of different cell types, run those cells in a flow cytometer, analyze that data with Python, and voila, that is my workflow, where I'm sort of like have this uh, design, build, test cycle, where the design is all in silico, building DNA constructs, testing, or building is the... um, uh, uh, cloning and like uh, this this modular Golden Gate cloning setup that I think I posted about on SciFind, 
Um, and then testing is put into cells, run in a flow cytometry, and then we take that and we go back into the design cycle. So that's sort of like my, my day-to-day lab life these days. Very clean, structured. Um, what do you usually, what are the points that you, I guess, um, struggle on or have to troubleshoot or find yourself um, like, yeah, what parts do you normally struggle with along this way? Yeah. Um, I mean, it used to be that the struggle was like getting constructs in the first place that, you know, sort of like trying to find, okay, what is the right piece to use here? I think that like I've overcome a lot of those barriers, both through my training and like, you know, being more familiar with the literature at this point. I think the the sort of silly things that happen in lab are like so many times when you're trying to design a synthetic construct, um, there are a million different ways to do it. And you sort of think, OK, which one of these ways uh, will work? And like, uh, you know, especially the way that I was trained, I was trained to do this sort of like um, uh, in series where you try one, you see if it works you go on to the next one, you go on to the next one, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really not feasible when you're trying to do cell engineering work. Um, so we, we have this, this joke in the lab of like, okay, should I try A or B? You should do both. Um, and that's, that's sort of, I think, overcome a lot of the struggles that I have is just sort of try and map out the space that you're working in ahead of time um, try and do all of those things simultaneously because so many of the like synthetic constructs that we have simply will not work. Well, they, they won't work because maybe you're using the wrong signal sequence in this particular cell type to get your receptor to be expressed in the cell surface. Or maybe this promoter does not produce as much protein in the cell type that you're working with versus, you know, the one that you're used to working in. Um, and if you have this sort of like semi-high throughput way of trying all of these different things in combination simultaneously, it makes it a lot easier to design functional constructs that do what you want. And so I think that that has been like the biggest thing in especially the last couple of years of my research is trying to think about like, okay, how can I explore all of the like uh, different parameters in this space to try and build things that are going to work in the cells that I'm uh, exploring my studies in. Cool. I think, um, what do you think is, so on one end, what is um, something that's really surprising or unexpected that you found in your current research? And then on that note, what is like a really big discovery or development in your field right now that's exciting you? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, something surprising in my current research. I mean, I think I think the way that the Sentinel project panned out was really not what I was expecting. Um, we sort of had this very lucky uh, call. So, so Dr. El Samad's lab had a previous, like, long-standing collaboration with David Baker's lab at the Institute for Protein Design in Seattle. Um, and I had been working on a project uh, as part of that collaboration, and we had sort of like a touch base meeting uh, about that project in like June of 2020, when most of us were not able to be in lab doing work. And we sort of mentioned to David that like I was working on this Sentinel cell project, and David was like, oh, well, we've got these like de novo design protein binders for SARS-CoV-2. Do you think you could use those? And I think that the fact that, you know, I, at this point, I had tried a handful of different binders um, uh, against this uh, antigen, um, and none of them had really given me the signal that I wanted. And so I was like, sure, I'll try whatever. I mean, that's great. And then they just 
freaking worked the first time and they worked very well. Um, they worked better than some of the sort of like gold standard antigen sensors that had already been used over the past like five or six years uh, in these synthetic receptors. So I think that that was like, that was really shocking to me that that you can go from, you know, de novo design to like a functional synthetic receptor in sort of one step. They didn't send us any DNA. They just sent us a protein sequence. You know, I ordered the the DNA for it from IDT. Like the the loop on that was so tight and closed so quickly. I just thought that was really cool. So I think that those sorts of things where we are taking all of this now like decades old knowledge in protein design and engineering and applying it directly into cell biology is like very, very exciting. And I think that, you know, synthetic biology is going to move very quickly through that. But I think the stuff that I'm really excited about in the field that feels like it's very much in its nascent stages is um, these sort of synthetic development systems where we're starting to be able to engineer cells to produce cells of different types or to produce tissues or uh, tissue morphologies of different types in this sort of like programmed way, very similar to how natural development happens. And I think these sort of advances in synthetic development are going to be absolutely transformative for how we think about cell therapy. Because right now, like I mentioned, cell therapy is you take this one type of cell and you put it into a body and it does exactly what you tell it to, hopefully. Um, but I think that, you know, as, as these therapies develop, we are going to have sort of like one type of cell that's going to arise into many different types of cells that collaborate to have this sort of like complex response to some disease state. And I think that through this synthetic development work, we're really like pushing what we can accomplish with cell therapy, which is very, very exciting to me. I'm salivating at that notion. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so sci-fi, like this, this augmentative kind of cells that you could incorporate in yourself. It really, um, really would be exciting to see that. Um, it's wild, right? One, one of my lab mates, you know, his presentations always start off with like, okay, imagine like the nanobots of sci-fi. We're a long way from having those functional nanobots, but what if our cells are actually those nanobots and we can program them now? Um, and I think that, yeah, it, it does feel very sci-fi, but it's also like these therapies are already being used in the clinic. Like this feels like the future of medicine to me. Yeah, it's kind of like, why are we reinventing the wheel when we already have cellular machinery? <laughs> Who needs nanobots when you can just, you know, use what's already there, like a bit more efficient? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the next thing is, um, what is, just a little offbeat, what other hobbies do you, do you think inspire your current work as a scientist? Like, I think some people, they, you know, they, I've seen a lot of, like, sports people like sports influences their work or something like that what would you say is your yeah that's interesting i mean i i think so i mentioned a little bit that i worked in tech support um between undergrad and grad school and sort of like a long-standing hobby of mine has been playing around with and I, I, this sounds so silly uh but playing around with linux you know when i was a little kid my dad was a, a field service engineer and had lots of like old computers lying around and to entertain myself i would like 
try and get these computers up and running and install Linux on them and try and get it working, which is like this sort of fun puzzle solving, especially like back in the 90s and early 2000s where Linux driver support for stuff was horrendous. Um, and it sort of turned into this like, okay, I am attempting to understand and engineer a complex system. And so I think the fact that I sort of ended up in cell engineering is a testament to my love of like fighting with complex systems to try and get them to behave the way that I want them to. So, so I think that that is one side of it. And I think at the same time, what I've sort of ended up using my uh, like system administration skills for uh, at this point in my life is maintaining like a media server that I share with a bunch of friends so like we can all watch TV together from various parts of the country and like all of that is kind of nice and like it's a nice way to think about like disseminating information and so I think that that sort of gets into you know one of the things that you mentioned in the intro is I I really firmly believe in this like information wants to be free kind of I idea um and I think that that informs my science in how I communicate my science. So these are sort of like, you know, my my fun hobby is playing with computers and making it so that I can share things with computers. And uh, in my job, I play with cells and make sure that I can share what I learn about cells as easily as possible. That's, I mean, yeah, going on to the next note, it's like you describe yourself as a publication anarchist. I'm very big on like, I love unorthodoxy. I love flipping the chessboard. I like disrupting a status quo because in that, in the antithesis of a thing, you can find a truth. Um, what does that mean for you? How do you see the future of scientific publishing? What are some advice for people looking to disrupt the status quo? Like rip it up. <laughs> I mean, I, so, okay, all right. I have this dream for what the future looks like. And I think that this dream requires infrastructure that, like, I am not capable of building on my own. I think that this dream is, you know, you get to this point of micro-publishing where every experiment you do, you publish, you DOI stamp it, you have methods attached to it, and then a figure is just a handful of these experiments, you know, brought together. A paper is a handful of these figures brought together. You can remix other people's experiments with your experiments into new papers. Like, you know, that that is sort of my dream of the future of scientific publishing. And I think there are a lot of people that, you know, have similar ideas about that. But, but I think that there is this sort of like metadata infrastructure that needs to emerge to be able to make that happen. There is a repository infrastructure that, and you know, like the NIH could very easily create, but is simply not. Um, and so I think that that dream is sort of a ways off from happening. I think where we're at, though, is really enabled by the existing infrastructure. The fact that we have bioarchive where any primary research on biomedical science can be posted, um, you know, similar to archive for basically every other field, right? Um, and that especially bioarchive has the ability to record comments, which is essentially public review, right? Um, I think because we have this infrastructure, we are now in an age where we simply do not need journals. Um, I saw I saw Mike Eisen give a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he made this comment about uh, the internet has transformed everything about life 
accept science communication that, you know, we've had the internet for, uh, what, when, when was, um, DARPA. So for almost 30 years now, uh, and yet we're still going through this same rigmarole where you get a finding, you send it to a journal, it goes through review a year and a half later, your paper comes out, uh, and you never see the reviews. The public never sees the reviews. I mean, uh, and you have no idea how they affected the paper, uh, and all of your results are delayed, whereas the internet enables instant communication and public commentary, and it enables people in the far reaches of the world who don't have the same kind of, like, economic privileges that folks in the U.S. and Europe and, uh, Eastern Asia have, um, uh, to be able to comment and, and contribute to scientific work, um, and so I think that, like, the, the sort of the current dream landscape is we can just stop publishing in journals. We can all review each other's science and bioarchive. We can immediately disseminate our science and bioarchive. And I think that what we can each do to be a part of that and to make this, you know, where science happens is to simply put our work there. Like there, there is this idea that you need journals to be able to uh, showcase that your work is important and to vet your work in this useful way. Um, and people, whenever I talk to people about this, they're like, well, I'm never going to get a job if I don't publish X, Y, and Z. But I think that that really undersells the impact that each of us can have with our work. You know, when, when you send a brilliant study that you've put together to a journal like Cell, um, what you're essentially doing is taking all of your cutting edge work and giving it to this journal for free. In fact, paying this journal to brand your ideas with their little logo and their silly layout. Um, when instead, if you took your valuable work and just put it on the internet, people would recognize that value even without the little journal stamp on it. And so I think that like, we can really make this dream future uh, happen simply by putting our stuff out there independent of journals. And that's, that's where my little anarchy comes from, is like, if we all start doing this, other scientists will be forced to recognize the value of work that is being published outside of journals. And each of us can contribute to increasing that value by reviewing papers and linking to papers that are on preprint servers. I mean, 1000 per there's like so much to unpack there because I love to just rip into this. <laughs> and that's part of the reason why we even um, worked on sci-fi because it was like, I, on one hand, there's this whole publication system and a lot of people trying to think about it from a publication perspective, like even, even with bioarchive and these things. Um, and this might be interesting from the linguistic perspective where they have a really high adherence towards their own formalism. And for me, it's like, what about all the things that like do not fit into that? How do you make things palatable, smaller, granular, experiential, anecdotal? And so those kinds of elements as a, as a wet lab person, as a person who's always at the bench, were like pivotal in me being able to execute anything. It's like, where does the expertise come from and stuff? Uh, that's always been super fascinating like what it, what aren't we seeing what aren't we aggregating um right and it's it's a it's a completely it's a completely different thing and with publications it's like it's i i also never i also don't understand it it's how do we keep 
giving that value away to something that is an arbitrary, an abstraction layered upon another abstraction. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I love what you've done with SciFind, the fact that there is like this resource, right? I mean, like, you know, throughout my PhD, I'm like, okay, I've got a question. Nobody in my lab knows. My boss doesn't know. I'm going to go on ResearchGate, which I feel like the quality of posts on ResearchGate is low. The like being able to like, you know, test uh, or, or, or not test um, to like, get some idea of like the ground truth behind what people are putting on there is really difficult. And so like looking through SciFind and seeing like these are high quality posts, these are from people who you can very easily identify uh, from their posts. Like I think that that is amazing because it's taking these sort of conversations that you have between you and your lab mates and the neighboring labs and turning this into sort of a global conversation, right? Which is I think an essential piece of making science more accessible. Yeah, it's not just it's not just that it becomes global. To me, it also almost creates an alternative value system for mm-hmm. scientists themselves. Like, I think in a lot of ways, we we focus a lot on our publication and we put a lot of our own self worth into this literary document at the end. When in reality, every like our our tips, our little discoveries, our our failures, even our very big in establishing our value because they're they're utilitarian. I mean, they have yeah. so much utility for people. And how do we value each other with the rest of the scope of our scientific experience? And I think we definitely see that in tech, like we see that with Stack Overflow or GitHub. Luckily, they have a lingua franca in a way through their code, so they can establish these um, systems of value around themselves that do not predicate having, you know, literary work to establish it. That's something that always felt difficult as a scientist was, I only really get my dopamine, so to speak, if I do this very elaborate, jump through this very elaborate hoop. Um, And a lot of people get depressed or demotivated and stuff. I think this is a more, it, it just is in pieces, you know? Oh, I, I failed, but people like the fact that I failed and it's yeah. useful, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I love that you have that uh, epic fail category on there because I don't know, I'm always telling like the the trainees that I mentor, I'm just like, a failed experiment is actually a successful experiment because to get anything, like you need to fail in order to succeed in science. Um, Every once in a while, something works the first try, and it's sort of magical when it does, but 99.9% of the time, like, any experiment that works happens after a significant amount of failure to figure out how it's working. Yeah, and the irony of it is those those experimental guardrails of having negative results, um, one, save a colossal amount of time, but the equivalency when we look at papers or papers are constructed right for a conceptual uh, framework but um when you try to mimic the methods that are in them they can be very difficult to reproduce in the same way it's like it's like when you got get one of those puzzles you know and the puzzle shows you the picture at the end but then you have all these pieces and you're like where does the corner go you know you'll make all the same mistakes inevitably because you don't have the as they say like it's in my hands this works. So what exactly is in your hands that make this puzzle solvable? Absolutely. And I I think that is something that really strikes me about the failure of journals as an ecosystem, that there is in review 
very few people are reviewing method sections. And so you end up with all of these garbage method sections out there. Like I spent, I spent almost a year of my PhD trying to uh, get up and running what should be a relatively trivial assay. And, you know, it, uh, basically I was doing these uh, uh, phosphoblots for phosphorylated uh, ERK, uh, which is one of the MAP kinases. Um, and although it's a relatively simple assay, there are so many variables involved. And it took me so long to get to the point where I could figure out, okay, what is the variable that I need to hold constant here to be able to get reproducible results from this assay? And like, I'm glad that I finally got there. And when I f published that paper, I was so intent on making sure that that part of the method section was very explicit. But this is an assay that people have been doing in that field for 30, 40 years at that point. And not a single result section that I, or method section that I found leading up to that highlighted that cell confluency was an essential thing to hold constant in this experiment. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't know. It, it really, I think we need more outlets for high quality methods. And like, thankfully now we have things like bioprotocols and protocols.io. Um, and I think that, you know, people are probably putting more effort into making high quality protocols for reproducibility. But the more avenues we have to be able to do that, the better for sure. Yeah, it's like, I think for what I've seen a lot of is like the ability to the a lot of these approaches are they are very structural and create these polished type of products. In my case, I also want the like, how do people communicate informally and everything that's lost in the process of almost um, smoothing out the thing such that it can be presentable, right? It's, yeah. I'm almost an enemy of perfectionism because the the higher that we place the standard on being perfect, the less likely you are to get that zero to one kind of um, exposure. Like, um, it doesn't have to be this elaborate thing. It could be two sentences saying, oh, this cell confluency doesn't work or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or, you know, it's even that granule. Think about how long it takes you to figure that out. It's months of troubleshooting that someone, all they have to do is utter a few words of their failure to, to disclose that. Um, and that's the, that's the crazy thing about the gravity of these tidbits. Um, yeah, but that's, that's extremely insightful. I, I love that idea of like, just share the information. It does not have to be epic. It can be so simple like that. Yeah, people can, and people can comment. We're human beings. We socialize. If we don't understand something, we say, hey, what was this? Clarify it. The end. Well, it's, it, nothing is ever perfect. So it, it's better to have a system that advocates for the journey, for the, for the mutability of things. Um, the next thing, obviously, as a mentor, you, um, you know, you've worked with a lot of trainees and things like that. What are steps that you think make science a more welcoming place for people? What's your approach to having an inclusive environment? I know there's lots of stories about like, you know, abusive PIs, difficult labs. I hope you had a great experience when you were going through it, but I know it's like, a, it's a contentious topic. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of complexity to this question because, like, what makes science inclusive, you know, like, 
obviously there are a lot of aspects of one's identity that can influence whether science is inclusive for you, right? I mean, we are we are still functioning in a racist, in a sexist society, in a homophobic, a transphobic society. Uh, so I think that, you know, there are these sort of fundamental aspects of identity and about systematic oppression that I think part of making science more inclusive is political action on these fronts at a societal scale, because I think that science will not be able to be truly inclusive and equitable until society as a whole is truly inclusive and equitable. Um, so, I mean, I think that that should be part of all of our work in science is like interacting with the societies that we do science in to make them more inclusive places. But obviously, you know, there's also specific things in science that we can do. And I think, I think there, I mean, I could talk about this for an hour on its own, right? But I think that like the, the key things from my experience that I try and implement during mentorship um, are uh, first, you know, making people feel safe to fail. I think that that was something that I really struggled with. And like, this was internalized. This, this wasn't even necessarily coming from like external sources, but when things didn't work, I was like, oh, that's because my hands are bad. It's because I'm bad at doing science when really it's because science is hard. Right. And so I try and like, communicate that to folks as much as possible. Um, that, uh, I, I think that, you know, it takes a long time to get experiments up and running, and it is not about you. It is about the experiment, and it's about figuring out what are the right variables to control for in those experiments. I think that that alone, at least from working with my mentees, seems like it has done a lot to make people feel empowered in the lab space. Um, and I think that that is sort of a universal thing, right? Like, you can apply that to every single person that you work with, and hopefully it will have a positive effect for everybody. I think on the more personal level, I think you need to be able to acknowledge that everybody has different goals, everybody has different experiences, and everybody has a different perspective on how to pursue their goals. And so I think as a mentor, your job is to sort of like work with your mentees to identify what are their goals, what are the barriers to achieving their goals? And how can you as a mentor best enable this person to be able to achieve their goals? Because so much of the time being a mentor is not doing something for somebody. It is providing somebody with access to the right opportunities to be able to thrive in the way that they can definitely thrive. Um, and that's sort of on an individual basis, right? You, you need to have these conversations about like, what are your goals um, with everybody that's coming through your lab, do regular check-ins, you know, be very mindful of the fact that, like, everyone has their sort of own unique experience in science, and you can, uh, support each of those experiences. Um, and then I think the last thing is, okay, I say you can support each of those experiences, but also... All mentors have their own strengths and they have their own weaknesses. And there are some things that you're simply not going to be able to do. Like now that I've been in the Bay Area for a while, if a mentee says that they want to go into industry, I can find I'm finally at a point where I can connect them with people in industry. Right. I can be like, here are some perspectives. I've never done that myself, but like I know people who have. But I think that there are still plenty of things that, you know, if a trainee came to me and said, let's say they want to work in science policy, 
I I really have no idea what that job role entails or what the career path to get into that job job role is like. And so I think that the in addition to making trainees, you know, feel like their failure isn't failure, making them feel like their goals, their individual goals are being valued, I think you also need to do a really good job of not being the only mentor. Everybody needs a team of mentors because no one is going to be able to provide everything that an individual needs in their training. And so as part of understanding these goals, I think there is also an important part of making sure that people know that they should be looking for other mentors and attempting them attempting to connect them to those mentors at the same time. Like, obviously, there's a lot more complexity than just those three things, but that is like the core recipe that I try to use in mentorship to make sure that people feel supported, can be retained in science, and can achieve their unique goals. Yeah, I think that's a very elegant and good strategy. It's also very realistic because it takes into consideration that there are a lot of confounding variables. You cannot be the arbiter of all of their futures as well. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's, I, w I feel like a lot of training for even that, you know, when, when we think about our PIs and our mentors, it's like, even they're, you know, they're trying their best, but at the same time, like, what are the tools that they might have available that allows them to also be good mentors? Um, and I think a lot of the system, it might have like these type of survivor biases, right? Where people experience yeah. a certain lab that might be very abusive and difficult. And they're like, oh, but I turned out well, right? And thus it perpetuates it to some extent. Yeah, definitely. And not just survivorship, but I think there's also selection bias, right? Is that yeah. I think that, you know, especially in academic science, but I think that this is probably true in some industry contexts as well. We really select for people who are very confident um, for people who, f like, can talk very fluently. Like, there, there's not even a lot of selection for people that can write well about their science or communicate their science well after thinking about it for a long time, right? Um, and so there are, like, certain personalities that are selected for throughout science, and it makes people who don't share those personality types feel like they can't succeed in these environments. And I think that that means that we're missing out on so many unique perspectives, right? If, like, if the personality mold of scientists, of successful scientists, all look the same, they're also all probably taking very similar, like, mental approaches to thinking about their science, which means that we're not getting the kind of innovation that we're all hoping for from science as well. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting type of perspective on it. It's like, what, just the level to which we, like, what are we missing out on? And I think there's this really interesting quote where it's, I don't remember how it goes precisely, but it's something about, I care less about the grooves on Einstein's brain than of all the people who, um, you know, kind of grow up around the world who don't have the same opportunity to attain it. Like, what is the unknown unknown? Um, yeah. What are we selecting against? Uh, uh, definitely. I think even, even the other thing, the way that our scientific culture can be constructed is that it... Right, we have this obfuscatory nature and things can feel very el elitist or secretive. And then I think science communication, when it starts going down 
to the layman or the general populace, they can feel that. And maybe some of the anti-intellectualism that we get is a byproduct of that own, that, that behavior that already exists in that. It's like, it, it, it goes downstream, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what is, what's one of the most rewarding uh, parts of your scientific journey so far? Like what is, yeah, I mean, hands down working with trainees, I think every time that I get to see somebody that I'm working with, get excited about their science or have a cool new idea or, or really just like feel like they are progressing towards their goals. That is that is far and away the most rewarding thing that I do about my science. Like, it's always fun to get a cool result. Like, it's great when something works, you know, you high five everybody and it's like, oh my gosh, all right, we got it working. But I think that those moments are sort of like, they're, they're the little dopamine hit that like keep you coming back when experiments aren't working. But the thing that keeps me in this career is mentorship it is my trainees it is you know my colleagues who i get to provide help to like seeing other people succeed is the best part about doing science for me yeah i love that vicarious joy <laughs> it's really yeah. good um you can't always get your experiments to work but watching other people's work as a consequence of you is like an aggregator of your own <laughs> joy um what is a this this is kind of a fun one what is uh one thing about as a scientist you probably have to field a lot of questions from people who aren't scientists what's something that people don't know or usually get wrong <laughs> um, or you have to keep explaining i don't know oh man i you know it's so silly but the idea of a protein as a molecular machine that does things in cells like uh, even even before I was a cell biologist, like, you know, taking an intro bio course, I'm like, okay, like, these are the things that do work. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to insult like lipid people or nucleic acid people. Because um, obviously, these are really important molecules in cells that do important work. Um, but I mean, at least as a cell biologist, like the fundamental unit that I understand how cells function with is these little molecular machines that do a job. And when I attempt to explain my work to other people, like, I think I've gotten better about it now, but for years, I would just start off with the assumption that people understand what a protein is and the sort of, like, fundamental building blocks for how cells interact with their environment. And I just, I know I can't make that assumption anymore. I have to sort of start from this basic level of, like, you know, talking about a molecular machine. Uh, and I think that people get that better but it's still for people that and like I, I can't blame anyone for people that don't think about this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis the idea that you have these like nanoscale machines that each are doing different jobs in each of the like billion different cells in your body is I, I think that that is not an instinctive thought for anyone, an intuitive thought for anyone. Uh, and so I, I find, you know, having to come back and really explain that to people is the sort of like biggest hurdle I feel like I have in communicating my science to non-experts. I think with protein specifically, the word, it has a colloquial meaning where like, yeah, exactly. I when I think protein, I think, you know, like a, like a chicken nugget, you know, it's yeah. like, they, they think of it as like a, as a, as a material, but it's actually like a, I mean, yes, it is a material as well as being 
literally like you know the um uh everything from our receptors to machinery to like all these different things you know so yeah 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 totally i mean and and i think that that is one of the ways that i found people to like get an idea of it is that like okay when you eat meat there are these proteins in that meat that your body will break down and then turn back into new proteins that do specific jobs in your body. But like the chicken had proteins that were doing jobs in its body and your things that are going to be doing jobs in your body are made out of those. Like, I think, I think that's when people start to get it. It's like, Oh, this is not just like a nutrient. It's a nutrient that gets used to do specific things. Right. Yeah, that's a fun. I never th honestly, I now I have to think back because I have run on the same assumption as you. <laughs> and now I'm like, wait a second, no one knows that it's a machine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, people think of it as like, no, this is the thing that you drink to get swole. Um, yeah, exactly. Oopsies. Um <laughs> if you interesting like kind of shout out, but if you could collaborate with any scientist right now who are you like fangirling over who do you oh who my goodness um okay so i have been really obsessed with jared tocher's work for a long time uh i think that he is doing just like absolute the the folks in his lab are doing just absolutely amazing things with regards to you know building synthetic uh development systems i think that like the, his his approach to understanding cell signaling his approach to understanding development i just think that that is so freaking cool um, but also I am so lucky to be a part of this wonderful community called the leading edge, um, which was, uh, founded by Karen McKinley, who is now a professor at Harvard. Um, and this is just a group of postdocs and early career faculty, um, that has, has been just an absolutely splendid community for me. And there are so many people in this group that I am just like dreaming of collaborative projects with, particularly Teresa Loveless, who's now a new faculty at Rice University, who is doing synthetic approaches to make DNA recorders for understanding how cells develop. Um, there's Liz Haynes, who's at the Mortgage Institute in Wisconsin. Liz is doing, like, amazing imaging in developing and adult zebrafish to understand how we get these, like, immaculate patterns in, in biology. I mean, th these are just two of the amazing scientists I know through Leading Edge that I'm just, like, dreaming of the day when we can submit grants together and do cool work together. Oh, those sound like super fun projects. Um, yeah, it's always good to kind of hear what, you know, what, who, who are the shout outs, who are the yeah. people that you want to, um, you know, work with? What are your future goals or aspirations um, in, in your field right now? I mean, you have a focus on mentorship, you have your receptors, you have your sentinel cells, what's an even, what's like a pie in the sky? Yeah, I mean, I think the the pitch that I am trying to take to universities for my lab is I think that the um, the sort of platform that I am building right now in my postdoc for understanding how second messenger signaling works in specific cell types can scale to any second messenger and any cell type. And I think that we're going to be able to use this work to sort of build like a giant cookbook of you want a cell that can sense and respond to this specific signal in this specific environment with this specific response, look in the cookbook, say signal, environment, response, 
here's the gene expression program, shove it into your cell and it can work. I think that that is, that is the dream of my future lab. And I think, I mean, in, in that group of people that I want to collaborate with, uh, I, I, I should shout out to, you know, my for, forever collaborator, Steph Crilly, who is now a postdoc in Tanya Corteme's lab at UCSF working on protein engineering. And, and Steph and I have this sort of idea about how we can take the protein engineering side of this to better understand the fundamental principles of how second messengers have become this very important uh, signaling route and why they might be better for multiplex signaling systems compared to any number of other things. And so I think, you know, a future lab that thinks about how, how can we take existing systems and put them into engineered cells for specific responses? And then how can we build even better systems for specifically demultiplexing environmental signals? Like that is that is the dream. That is that is what I would love to spend my life's work working on. I love that just kind of engineering type of pipeline and approach to cells. And I think at now, especially with all this in bio stuff, uh, we are getting the pace at which and the level at which we're going to be able to control biology and still can uh, makes it really compelling when we think about these kind of GitHubian, Stack Overflowian philosophies of of how we share knowledge around it, how we build those structures. Like all of those things get intertwined, um, and that to me is a beautiful orchestra of stuff. Um, what uh, just little off topic, but you have cats. Yes, I do. I'm really surprised that I, you might have heard them running around at the beginning. I'm like staring. I'm in one room looking into the window of another room where they are both sitting and taking naps now. They, they have the greatest life because they have outsourced their thinking to us, <laughs> yeah. which is really the optimal. So maybe that's what will happen to us with AI. It's like we get to the point where we we don't need to <laughs> there's no more thinking <laughs> i will say though i i think it's very interesting to see the sort of like neurotic behaviors that cats adopt right because they they are sort of living in this like very limited world where other people are making decisions for them i do worry about the neuroses that humans will develop as the decisions that we make about how our lives go become further and further outsourced I mean, very uh, on Aldous Huxley's uh, thing he has, like with Brave New World. Or, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it, like exactly that. I think we're more living in a. I mean, right? There's there's this constant interplay between: Are we going to end up in an Orwellian society or a Huxleyan one? And at least. In America, there are Orwellian elements, but a lot of the way in which things are done is Huxleyan. It's like, yeah. it's not, oh, I mean, on one end there is um, attempts at totalitarian control, but it's more like inundate people with information. They cannot make choices and we, and then you, you know, do what you wish. Yeah, You're totally. Passionate. I mean, there, yeah, there was this this comic that circulated, I think almost a decade ago now about like, you know, we were so scared of 1984 that we didn't even realize we ended up in Brave New World. Um, and I, my my wife says this thing all the time about how the future will be stupider and more boring than we can possibly imagine. And I think that that is the, the real highlight in me thinking about how 
how we have ended up in a, a Huxleyan-esque dystopia is that we thought it was going to be, you know, growing humans to do specific jobs and, and you know, pre-deciding what that was going to be and dosing people with SOMA. And in fact, what we have is a socioeconomic system that functionally um, has these, like, social determinants of health and uh, ability uh, to people. So not growing people in test tubes, growing people in different socioeconomic climates. And instead of Soma, a drug that you can go on vacation, we have Netflix and YouTube, right? Which is so much less exciting than the promise of a drug like Soma, but also so much more mollifying than we could have possibly imagined. Yeah, it's like, um, it's really interesting because when people talk about how, um, like, America is like really powerful thing really is the is the way that they're able to do marketing and types of propaganda things like that it's really quite it's really quite astonishing even on a global scale like the achievement of that um and we see it throughout everything and we have our bread and circuses to some extent our netflixes and our social media which is yeah our it's the soma <laughs> and then and then being inundated with all this different information we can't really make um, choices. Uh, and then on top of that, this kind of Darwinian structure in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking wild. <laughs> yep. Um, but you know, at least we get to have a bit of a scientific fiefdom and try to like, you know, we try to solve our problems within, um, the places in which we can do it. Um, yeah. science, science is always the kind of, um, the guiding not the guiding light but it feels like in some ways our technology is our salvation although i also believe that it's our community and our people that's even why i work on sci-find it's there are many tools that we can use but the best answer is just the people like they help I, I completely agree. I mean, yeah, this this wonderful community that you're building here is just another aspect of of ways in which people can join together to have a positive effect on the world. Like, I think I think this is one of the real dangers about how we talk about science as a society is that there are these great people with specific contributions when in reality, if you actually want to push things forward and make progress in the world, you have to do it as a group. You have to do it in this sort of like, um, bulk community-based way because you're not going to make change as an individual. Yeah, it's heavily mythologized, which I think is uh, it's 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 not it's just not true, really. And it goes down yeah. to even something like how a Nobel Prize is constructed. Like what yeah. it it doesn't even make knowing you know having us worked in labs, working in labs, etc. I'm like okay, yes, a person wins a Nobel Prize, but what about all the postdocs? What about all the grad students? What about all the people? Of course, they get some cachet because they worked in the lab, but realistically, they're there, you know? How is it not a, how is the Nobel Prize not even split between the lab itself? It just perpetuates a mythology that isn't true. It's just not yeah. that, it just isn't that. Uh, I don't, that part was, is very, it's a hard pill to swallow, um, the individualism that is kind of, uh, 
almost uh, propagated in that way because it's just yeah. not true. Um, but in any case, um, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk and educate us and explore a bunch of different topics. Um, there's Thank you so much for having me. This was a lovely conversation. And thank you for the folks uh, listening, especially shout out to Maeve, who I just met in person at a Leading Edge meetup. Ooh, that's super cool. Hi, Maeve. Um, yes, we, we record this. So afterwards, it's going to be posted online and we can listen to it after. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for participating. It's been a really good chat. And yeah, hope to see you around the platform. Feel free to engage with the community and explore. Uh, will do. Yeah, thank you for creating this, this wonderful community, both in the Discord and on SciFind. Um, excited to click around. Awesome. Have a great day, everyone, and thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.